Amen. All right, I want to finish up the apologetic that I started last week. And you know the reason that I do that is I want you to be in a position where you can defend the gospel to, against unwarranted attack, people that don't understand what they're talking about, people that, that really say lies and misinformation. And it's time for us to stand up, to stand up and let the truth be known. Uh, and that's what, what our role is. And so we started that last week. And the predominant issue that I raised last week was the fact that everything that we have, that we rely on through the Bible, is based on first-hand eyewitness information. It's not second-hand. It's not hearsay. It's first-hand. And I, and I spent a lot of time going through that. And we're going to continue that now. Um, and, and so one of the issues, if you have that outline from last week, uh, I'm, I'm on point four of that outline now. Uh, and the issue becomes, well, we know Jesus died somewhere around the year 30 AD. Um, and so when were the books written? When was the New Testament written? And so what we, you know, and, and how reliable is the information that's in the books? We know that it was based on firsthand information, but critics will say to you, oh, come on. These books were written a couple hundred years after Jesus was born. Who knows what kind of misinformation was in there after they were copied and recopied and recopied? Well, that's false, folks. That's false. Because what you look for is in historical accuracy is what's referred to as original papyra, papyrus. What was written on papyrus that is close in time to the event it describes. Um, and that's considered historical veracity. Well, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, they found a papyrus in Egypt called Ryland's Papyri. Uh, and that papyrus was written with eight verses from the Gospel of John. And what they found is that those verses were entirely accurate, and they went back and carbon dated the papyrus, and determined that the, py the papyrus was written in the year 110. What does that mean? It means about 70 or 80 years after Jesus was crucified, that there was a written record written on papyrus that is exactly what you're reading today in the Gospel of John. Eight verses. Now, that's amazing to be able to find a papyrus so closely tied into the original events. Uh, uh, and so therefore, how can scholars, liberal scholars, say the Gospel of John was written 200 AD? And there are people that perpetuate this myth. It's impossible. If this papyrus coming out of Egypt, uh, which was being disseminated, was written in 110, well, then we know that the Gospel of John had to be written before then. Uh, William Albright, one of the foremost archaeological uh, experts uh, taught at Johns Hopkins University, and he looked at the New Testament documents to determine in his uh, uh, earnest and, and well-read background, what was the date of these documents? And he determined that every one of the New Testament books, every one was written between the year 45 to 75 AD, every one, meaning that most of the eyewitnesses that were around when Jesus walked this earth were still available to see and to listen. And if it were not accurate, who would have basically disavowed? And you don't see any evidence going back in time of disavowal of those books. 
meaning again, close in time to the original documents. Uh, and so here's the point. If Jesus died somewhere around 30 to 33 AD, the book of Mark appears somewhere around 40 AD, then Matthew, Luke, uh, and John, somewhere within that same line time, we think that John was probably written somewhere around 75, 80 AD. This means that within the lifetime of the people that Jesus ministered to and, and uh, prepared these miracles, these eyewitnesses were available to look at these books and read these books and understand these books. So you understand that it's internally consistent. It's not fables. It's not oral. It's written. And so with that backdrop, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is important because here's Paul now who will write two-thirds of the New Testament uh, speaking again about the veracity of the early church and the documentation that we have. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, when he says according to the scriptures, he's not referring to the New Testament accounts. He's re referring to the Old Testament accounts. And we talked about all those references in the Old Testament that Jesus would have to die, all right, according to the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to, now pay attention to this, and you can underline this in your Bible when you speak to people about firsthand accounts, that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are all still living, though some have fallen asleep. Are you listening to this? 500 of the brothers, and I'll say brothers and sisters, who are most of whom were still alive at the writing of this book. And the writing of this book would probably have been somewhere around the year 45, 48 AD, somewhere in the area of about 15 years after Jesus was crucified. They all saw Jesus resurrected from the grave. These are all eyewitnesses. Then he appeared, verse 7, then he appeared to James, and we know that's his half-brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What does he mean as one abnormally born? He means on the road to Damascus, struck down by the light of Jesus Christ, Jesus appearing to him there. And so there you have it, folks. There you have the declination of all of the eyewitness testimony coming in a written form, written shortly after Jesus died, reproduced on the original documentation that we have. And, and here's the thing. Here, here is the thing that I want to emphasize to you, and that is this, uh, that, that we regularly accept the great writings of the Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, uh, Thucydides, uh, and, and all of these great uh, Greek historians, we accept their writings. We study them. We read them. Well, if you read my notes, you will learn that the first recorded 
papyrus of their writings was at least 900 to 1,100 years after they, they wrote it. 900 to 11 to 1,100. We take these documentations and we accept it. Oh, yes, this is what they said. This is what it is. It is accurate, all right? Yet the writings about Jesus that in some cases are 30, 40, 50, 60 years later, we reject it. We reject it. I ask you, honestly, where's the common sense of that? It's evil. You understand? It's satanic. It's, it's Satan demonstrating that he'll do anything to knock out uh, Jesus Christ, to keep us from relying on Jesus Christ. Um, and it's important for you to understand that. We have these, these various writings, uh, and there's not just one or two. There are hundreds. There are hundreds of copies uh, of the early writings of the New Testament, uh, all written between the year 100 to about 200 or so, uh, all confirming what we have. I mean, God has been so great to us. He has given us such information. And so the important thing is for you to understand this so that you can articulate this to a lost world. The world needs to hear accurate information. Now, understand, I didn't speak at all in this apologetic about the Bible being the inspired word of God. That's on a whole nother level, all right? Right now, I'm, I'm using the historicity of the documents to show you how they were written, where they were written, why they are reliable, why they're eyewitness testimony. It's what I would do if I were in court. It's not hearsay. It's not you telling what somebody else told you took place. You saw it with your own eyes. That's what courts look for in order to accept evidence. Is it firsthand reliable evidence? Well, I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that this Bible is in fact reliable firsthand. All right, and that those that discount it are living a lie. They're living a lie. Uh, and our responsibility to stand in the breach and make sure you do it. Read these notes, get comfortable. So, and I ask God to give you the strength and the courage to step up when you need to. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. You're out to dinner with a group of your friends and somebody will make some kind of a disparaging comment uh, about Jesus or about the Bible. Now, most of us, 10 years ago, might have just said, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable stepping up and doing that. Well, I'm going to tell you something now. God's put a burden on my heart. I, you have to step up. He's, God is going to make you accountable. If you are in the presence of somebody disseminating that, you have to step up. Do not be fearful that you will lose a friendship. I'm going to tell you something. If it's a godly friendship, you will not lose it. If it's a non-godly uh, relationship, then you need to lose it, okay? Because those people are not going to be the kind of people that are going to lift you up and affirm you and bring you closer to the cross. I'm going to lay it straight out. I'm going to lay it straight out. I, my wife and I have really determined this, even as, as, to, as to the people that we see regularly and, and socialize with it. I mean, we, we just thank God so much that he's given us you. All right, that you fill this, this tremendous part of our life. Well, you need to be aware of that. So you need to be able to speak out about the Bible, about the accuracy, and you do it the way I just did it. You do it just the way I did it. You don't have to uh, dehumanize people or antagonize people or make it an ad hominem attack. You're doing it to show people the misinformation that's out there, and it is loaded, and I hope you do this. Amen. Now, let's go back to the Gospel of John. 
chapter 15, as we embark on our continuing study of the Gospel of John, and you realizing now that the verses that you're reading were written somewhere around the year 80, 40 or 50 years after Jesus died on the cross. Um, and John wrote this because John was concerned about the direction of the church. He saw a lot of disinformation being coming into the early church, uh, and he was concerned about it. And so he, he really, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote this. And one of the things that I, I think that you come away with and you recognize, and you'll say to me, well, I'm, I'm amazed. If this were written somewhere around 40 or 50 years after Jesus died on the cross, how does he remember word for word what Jesus said? And I'm going to tell you, the only way that this could have happened was that the Holy Spirit inspired it. Meaning what? It was as if the Holy Spirit was the tape recorder bringing back to his mind every single thing that Jesus said. And you know that's the case because the Holy Spirit touches your heart now as you read this. And you're saying in your heart, amen, he's right, amen, he's right. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And so that's what we're seeing. And so this is an important deviation right now in Jesus' testimony and discourse to the disciples. Up to this point, he's been affirming them lifting them up. He knows they're going to go through hard times. He's telling them, I'm going to be with you. The Holy Spirit is going to be with you. You're going to be empowered. You're going to be blessed. But now he takes a different direction. Now he begins to tell them what it means when you're a disciple. You will be persecuted. And this is a message that's not heard too often in the pulpits of churches throughout the United States. You got that? This is a message that's not delivered. You know the message you normally hear, y'all, you accept Jesus, you're going to be rich, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be pain-free, uh, you know, the, the wealth and prosperity. And now Jesus is dropping this bomb on the disciples because that's who Jesus is. He tells us the truth. And so what he's going to tell us is, is that there are great privileges in being a disciple of Jesus. We will have life everlasting. He will be with us forever, but, but it will also be the beginning of persecution. Uh, and I submit to you folks that as you see this world devolve around us, that you understand that, that to be a Christian is going to be give a rise to persecution as we go forward. I am absolutely convinced of it. The Bible tells us that it's coming. It's coming. You could see it. You say something, you say to, you know, to society that you're a Christian immediately, immediately. Uh, people, people uh, come down on you. You know, I was uh, the president of a board of a, of a private prep school for a number of years in New Jersey. And when God really touched my heart and, and made me a Bible teacher now about 17 years ago, I went back for a meeting. And one of the leaders of that, of that uh, school, person who had also privately been a, uh, uh, a president of the board before me, said to me, no, she said, I, I heard that you're, you're involved in, in spreading uh, the word about Jesus Christ. She was purportedly a Christian. Uh, and I said, yes. She says, what denomination are you in? And remember, this is godless New Jersey. I said, uh, Southern Baptist. And she went like this, oh, John, with this like disgusted, disgusted view, you of all people. Yeah, and, and I, I, there it is. You understand? That's persecution. 
You don't even realize it's persecution, but it's so slickly done, all right, where people are debasing who you are and what you're about. You understand? You have to be aware of it. You have to be aware of it. Well, I shook it off like water off a duck's back. It didn't matter to me what she said. And that's how you have to be. So let's look at John chapter 15, verses 18 to 25, as Jesus prepares the disciples for hard times. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, quote, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. So you see the word hate come up here about seven times. Uh, and so here, Jesus, people don't discuss the, the real price of discipleship with Jesus Christ. Uh, and Jesus made it very clear, very clear, you will be persecuted. You will be despised. You, the world will not embrace you. And when we talk about the world here, we're talking about the world system, okay? What the world looks for. Uh, the, world, the world system does not elevate Christianity. Uh, and it, it, it's clear that the world system hates Jesus, hates everything about him. Uh, and you see now, you, you, you know, even in these political discussions, you can almost elevate any discussion about any group of people. And, and right away, people go, oh, you can't say that. Oh, no, you can't say that. Oh, you can't say that. But Christianity, bombs away. <laughs> bombs away. You understand? What do you think it's about? It's about this. It's about the satanic aspect of, of the world hating Jesus Christ. And so before this, Jesus has spent a long period of time in his discourse in these several chapters telling the disciples how he's going to bless them and be with them. Uh, and now the word hate comes up seven times uh, and he's speaking to his friends. And so it's critically important, critically important that we understand this and that we understand what, what this Jesus is talking about. Uh, the thrust of these verses is to show why the world hates us. Um, and, and that's a big deal here. Jesus gives three reasons why the world hates us. First, the disciples will be hated because they are not of the world. What does that mean? It means not of the world system, not of what the world elevates, uh, because we as Christians do not subscribe to what the world thinks is good and right, all right? We, we stand separate and apart. The world is involved in self-service, lust, pleasure, uh, immersed in sin, all right? How much can I get? How much can I be on top of other people? And Christians are not like that. 
We're, we're about serving as the hands and feet of Jesus. And so the world is ignorant. Turn to 1 John, 1 John, the epistle of John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. <laughs> they don't know God, all right? That's why they don't know us. They don't know God the Father. They have no idea who God the Father is. And the only way you can know God the Father is by knowing Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on that? I want you to understand that. You'll hear people talk about the universal fatherhood of God. There is no universal fatherhood of God. Let's put that lie to rest. If you don't get anything out of what I've taught, I've told you time and time again, those people who have not accepted Jesus Christ and, and, and do not accept the Father through Jesus Christ. They are outside the will of God. They are revolutionaries. Doesn't matter how nice they are. They are effectively shaking their fist at God. They're outside his will. God is not their father. If they accept him and embrace him, then he will become their father. That's God but he is not their father now. There is no universal fatherhood of God. Look also uh, at the gospel of John chapter one, verse 10. He was in the world, this is Jesus, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him, all right? The world did not recognize Jesus, even though Jesus actually was the creative agent that created this world. What, a, what an anomaly that is, amazing. And so, uh, you know, the, the principal reason that there is an enormous difference that exists between us and the world uh, is that we have other goals. We are serving God. We are looking towards eternity. We're not here looking to gather everything that we can possibly gain at the expense of other people. We are trying to serve God through the love of Jesus Christ and be the hands and feet of Jesus. That's not the world model. That is not the world model, and that is why the world despises you. Second, the second reason Jesus gives for the hatred of his disciples is that he has chosen them out of the world. Therefore, although the world rejects Christ's salvation and despises it wor his work, it also hates those who have been chosen by him. How do you like that? They don't like Jesus. They don't want anything to do with it. But by the way, you think he chose you? I hate you more. All right? I despise you more. Now, um, why is that? Because Jesus indicted the world on the premise of relative goodness. Listen to this, and I've thought about this and prayed about it. Before Jesus came to the world, all right, you could say, well, I'm, I'm better than my neighbor. I do good works. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I'm a relatively good person, and people would live like that. Jesus comes, and he explodes that myth. There is no relative goodness. I'm not interested in you deciding that you're a good person, that you're better than your neighbor, that you're a good father, that you're a good husband. Your righteousness stands as filthy rags before the God of the universe. Amen. 
that destroyed the world. He's got to go. He's got to die. I don't want to hear this message. This message indicts me. You understand? And that's why the world crucified him because they couldn't stand to be indicted of their own filthy rags. And you're gonna hear this often where people will say to you now, well, I'm a good person, I lead a good life, I'm a moral person, and you just wanna shake your head and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. There is no good. Your good is so outside the confines of the goodness of God that it's as far as the East is from the West. All right? And God tries to teach us this. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. And you understand this, and it's so poignant to me. And, and that is, again, why the world hates us. Third, the world hates Christ, and the world hates Christians because of our identification with Christ, just because we are affiliated with his name. It's like this. You hear people say, even in prayers, you could say, you could say any kind of prayer you want, you could say a prayer. You're in a public place. You could say, don't say Jesus, right? You're going to go to Washington. Wherever you're going to go, you can make you, a oh, good prayer. You want to pray, pray for the Muslims. We're all, we're all serving the same God. Wrong. Don't go down that path, okay? Look, I love Muslims. I hope, I hope they get saved, but they are not worshiping the same God. You understand, folks? They're not worshiping the same God. The only way you worship the God of the universe is if you're connected with Jesus Christ. That was the lifesaver. That is how, I, how he identified himself. Uh, and anything else is far from the mark. And so when you say you're a Christian, that name, that name raises the hackles of Satan and the demonic forces and the enemies. And that's why you will be persecuted you will be persecuted. So be ready. It's coming. Uh, it, it's, it, whether Some of you may say, well, I've never really felt persecuted. Maybe you didn't have the spiritual discernment to know you were being persecuted. You understand? That's probably most likely. You didn't have the spiritual discernment to understand the nuances of what persecution is. Look, it's not going to be necessarily with an ax or a gun. It could be in so many other ways. Just like, you know, I felt that, that woman saying that to me. The demeaning aspect of who you are. The fact that you will not be promoted, that you will not be elevated. All right? All of this, let me tell you, all of this is persecution that, that, that you need to be prepared for. Uh, and so there's a second reason why the world hates Christ and his works. Um, and... And Jesus speaks about this in verse 24. He speaks of the many miracles he performed through the power of the Father. Miracles are very significant in John's Gospels. The miracles reflect what Christ does when he prays to the Father, seeking glory to the Father. The miracles themselves are glorifying Christ and glorifying God. This is the essence of God's work. Uh, and he did this just before he, he healed the blind man. Uh, and effectively, it's the works, the miracles through the Father that elevates Jesus Christ, and the world can't stand it. The Jewish elite saw these miracles. They knew what Jesus did, uh, and, and yet they put Jesus to death besides understanding it. 
Uh, and the final analysis, the hatred of the world for Christ followers may re be reduced to this. I say this in point nine. The world hates Christ followers because it hates Christ and the world hates Christ because it hates God the Father. We want to do it our own way. Don't you understand it? I mean, you talk to most people, here's what you're going to get. Well, I, I believe in the universal fatherhood of God. All men are basically good. I believe in the goodness of humanity, the inherent goodness of humanity. Where is this coming from? I've told you time and time and again, take two babies, put them in a, in a crib, put one toy, and I submit to you within five minutes, one of those kids is going to get beat on the head by the other, and he'll be crying. The universal goodness. I give you the universal inherent goodness of man. You know this. We've all had kids. We've been around kids. You understand this thing. You know what it's like in your heart. Without Jesus Christ, really, I mean, you live in Naples, you drive in this traffic. Frankly, without Jesus, you take your car and you drive it right into somebody else's car because you lose your mind. It's just because God has entered your life and has washed these things away. Look, and you know you're, it's a small line. It's a small line between us and where they are. But for the mercy of Jesus Christ, don't ever forget this. Don't ever forget this. Um, and, and, and as I reflected on this, I reflected on what it means to be a Jesus, a be, a be a Christian. I want to, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12. What did Jesus say about what he would do? Luke chapter 12, verse 51. I love this because this really blows up this issue of the universal fatherhood of God. Verse 51, do you think, this is Jesus, I came to bring peace on earth? I'm reflect on that right now. No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus, what are you saying to me? What does this mean? It means this, that when you come out of a dissolute relationship, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, those members of your family who are left behind will not be happy will not be happy. How do you think he's talking here about a first century Jewish family who all of a sudden embraces Jesus Christ? How do you think the rest of the family went? You're a loser. You're going to hell. We don't want you part of what we're doing. Jesus tells you flat out that's what's going to happen. People would rather be having people be drunkards and dissolute people than becoming Christians. Amen. You understand that? I mean, this is some, some of you are saying, oh, I can't understand it. He's telling you this. This is why he came to divide. He came to separate us from evil. And some of that evil resides in our own families. Some of it resides in our home families. Now, I'm not saying that they purposely, that they sit there and they purposely do evil things. They don't even know. They're captive to the world system. All right? But Jesus is telling you this is what's going to happen. This is why the world hates you. How can this be? 
John, how can it be? You see Jesus telling you. Turn also to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. I love this because this is when people, you know, people that cite misinformation will always say this. Well, I thought Jesus came to bring peace on earth. Oh, and now look at the world. What kind of a fake God do you have? Go back and read the original time, what the angels said over the manger of Jesus. Peace on earth. To whom? To men of goodwill, meaning men who have embraced Jesus Christ. Not peace to the world. There'll never be peace in this world. There never will be peace to this world system because this world system is sold out to Satan. This is Satan's planet, all right? We're visiting, all right? But thank you, Jesus, you're with us right to the end. And we understand it. Now look at these verses, verse 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, make no mistake and don't misinterpret that verse. Jesus is not recognizing violence. He's not looking for armed insurrection. What he's saying there, it is the division by the sword of the godly from the ungodly. That's what the sword is. To separate us from those we need to be separated from. And may God give you discernment about this. Because we many of us need to be separated from those kind of people. We love them. We bring the gospel of Christ to them, but we're not like them, all right? And let's make sure we understand that difference. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Oh, Jesus, what are you saying? In other words, he's not saying that we become the natural enemy. It's that they become enemies of us because they cannot stand for what we stand for, that the very name of Jesus so rackles their mind and and upsets their their emotions that they will revile. Better you're a drunkard. Better you're a criminal than you becoming a Christian. Uh, And see in verse 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let me understand and underscore what he's saying there. He's saying this, you respect your mother and father. That's a commandment. But you do not elevate family members higher than God. All right? You do not do that. You separate them from God. All right? And remember this when your kids come into town and they visit you. And some of you will then say, I couldn't come to church today because my kids were visiting. And I say, what a wonderful example. You've stayed home. All right? Sorry to say that. I know some of you are looking at me and saying, I wish he didn't say that. (laughs) I had to say that. Get up. Get out of your house. Say to your kids, here's coffee. Here's muffins. Here's cereal. I'll be back. I'm going to church. And when you say that, your kids will remember and respect you and follow you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for these words. Lord, I thank you for the mercy that you have towards us, that you've given us Jesus. Lord, I thank you for Jesus is telling us that we're going to be persecuted. Lord, we are ready. We understand. We ask you to give us the grace and the strength to face this persecution, to know what it means to serve you, Lord. 
And to know what it means to stand up for you, Father, I pray to be with our people, bless them and affirm them, lift them up and protect them and bring them back to study your word next week. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.